and welcome to the first episode of Lady Cryptoid Spook Show, an educational history podcast. That's educational, comma, history podcast. I'm Lady Cryptoid, and this show is going to be a little different than other history podcasts because I'm not such a good storyteller, but I am a great collector of concepts and events. When you're learning history seriously, the goal is not very often to tell a good story anyway. That is the domain of literature. The goal in historical study is to find the patterns that link events together to try to understand the why and how more than the who and what. So every week, I'll be choosing a theme and presenting events, documents, and concepts that relate to that theme. Your job is to reflect on the connections you're making between them and between them and yourself. Place yourself in the great stream of history, my friends. Let's begin! Artifact 1. The Rhizome. For this, our first episode, our topic is connecting the dots. I chose this theme because when I was developing my research papers as a history major in undergraduate school, that's what I felt like I was doing. After choosing a topic, I'd amass a whole bunch of sources that were both directly and tangentially related to the topic, pour through them, take notes, and then get to the fun stuff, looking for connections. Not the connections I thought would be there, but the connections that were there when I looked at the sum of the evidence with some distance. Patterns in events, rhetoric, and modes of thinking that brought together seemingly unrelated people and details. It's electrifying work, like I could almost feel sparks in my head. Recently, I've been learning about the major modes of thinking in the psychology of learning. About a century ago, there were the behaviorists, who believed that knowledge existed entirely outside of our minds, that the real world was the sensory input we received, and that we internalize it through systems of practice and reinforcement. A half century ago, cognitivists started focusing on how we transfer knowledge from the outer world into our memories, thoughts, and emotions. Today, constructivism is the vogue. Constructivists believe that reality is individual and inside, and that we construct knowledge by making connections between our lived experiences. One constructivist metaphor that really struck me is the rhizome, a shapeless network of concepts. Imagine a jar of marbles, for example. All of the marbles in the jar connect to one another through pathways of other marbles. If you shake the jar, that'll still be true. There will just be new pathways. Now let concepts stand in for those marbles. Let's take dog and chocolate as examples. Dog connects to furry, connects to fur, connects to color, connects to brown, connects to chocolate. Shake the jar. Dog connects to breed, connects to chocolate lab, connects to chocolate. Shake the jar. Dog connects to caretaking, connects to danger, connects to chocolate. 
These are the pathways through which we learn how dog and chocolate relate to one another, which we likely learn by interaction with either dogs or dog enthusiasts. Umberto Eco says, in Semiotics and the Philosophy of Language, that under the Rizo model, quote, thinking means to grope one's way. The beauty of this model is that it allows for multiple interpretations of the same events and information, which tracks with how the world seems to work. Everyone walks away from any one interaction, object, or datum with entirely different takeaways. Reality rarely seems to be objective. The model also implies that knowledge is variable, that what you know about dogs today will probably be different a week from now, unless you simply don't encounter or have the occasion to think about dogs in your life. This should also track with reality. One of the features of constructivism that I appreciate the most is that it trusts the human mind and encourages us to look inside ourselves for knowledge. You may notice in the history I gave of the theoretical movements in educational psychology, a trajectory inward, wherein reality moves from the objects around us to our memories, to the sum of our lived experiences. In this way, constructivists are not entirely unlike mystics and occultists, many of whom believe that we already possess the divine power of the universe, and the trick is to turn our gaze inward to see it. The project of this podcast is to promote the kind of critical thinking and connection making typical of work in the humanities. but. It's also to help us all find the joy in that connection-making and to find ourselves in the great rhizome of human history. As you listen, make note of the connections you make, the sparks that fly, no matter how small they may be. I'm going to want to hear about them. Artifact 2, CPT In the mid-1970s, a graduate student in psychology at the Medical University of South Carolina named Patricia Riesick became a counselor in one of the first rape crisis centers in the United States. She describes her very first experience as a rape crisis counselor as such, quote, The very first night I was on call, I went to the hospital in the middle of the night to meet a young woman who was nearly speechless in shock of what had happened to her. I was mostly just sitting with her silently, waiting for a nurse or doctor, when her husband came barreling through the doors of the emergency room, yelling, What have they done to me? Aside from being flabbergasted at his response, I realized that I was clueless about what this woman was going through and how to help her. Because Riesick's field was clinical psychology, she and a fellow student turned to the journal's psychological abstracts for potential solutions. 
They went through every issue from 1929 to 1974, looking for research on the psychological effects of rape on victims. They found only five, one of which, she told me, was about, quote, how it interrupted the psychoanalytic process. Another was about pastoral counseling for rape victims, and two were about victims' precipitation of rape, or, in other words, how the victim caused the rape to happen. Dr. Riesick started researching rape victims. As she was leaving grad school to pursue an academic career, two professors told her, you should probably have a second topic that you're researching because you might not get tenure studying rape victims. Then, in the late 1970s, the National Institutes of Mental Health granted $3 million for two longitudinal studies of rape victims at MUSC and the University of Georgia, and she was able to drop her other topic. At the time, the cultural understanding of rape was so primitive that Dr. Riesick had to explain that rape was a bad thing that caused symptoms in victims because, as she told me, people would just say, isn't that just sex? So what? There was also no holistic understanding of trauma in the psychological field. Dr. Riesick tried to write a grant application to study battered women and was turned down because she was supposed to focus on victims of completed rape only. But on average, she told me, quote, even in that first study where they were, quote, rape victims, they had on average six different kinds of adult traumas and 41% had child sexual abuse histories. You don't go to therapy after one trauma, you know? Instead of studying trauma, researchers cited combat trauma syndrome, rape trauma syndrome, battered women syndrome, or child abuse syndrome, despite the fact that they were all seeing the same symptoms, regardless of population. Finally, in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association included post-traumatic stress disorder in the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or dsm 3 Dr. Riesick guesses that this diagnosis came about because public awareness of trauma was reaching a critical mass during the end of the Vietnam War and the rise of the women's movement. At the time, PTSD was conceptualized and therefore treated as an anxiety disorder. An illustrative example of this is prolonged exposure, a highly effective therapeutic program for PTSD that was developed by another rape researcher, Dr. Edna Foa, who is now the director of the Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety at the University of Pennsylvania. Briefly, prolonged exposure treats PTSD behaviorally by bringing patients into contact with harmless triggers of their symptoms until the patient no longer feels fear and anxiety in the presence of those triggers. But Dr. Riesick had long noticed that her patients weren't just experiencing fear and anxiety, they were also experiencing intense feelings of shame, guilt, and depression. After finding herself unhappy with the results of one study that treated PTSD as an anxiety disorder, she decided to develop a different approach. She was interested in Aaron Beck's cognitive theories about depression, which focus on the negative beliefs patients absorb from their society, like, I'm worthless, I have no future, or no one loves me. 
These cognitive theories, along with Lisa McCann's constructivist theory on trauma, that victims create new beliefs about safety, trust, control, esteem, and intimacy based on traumatic events, formed the basics of Dr. Resick's cognitive processing therapy, which treats PTSD by identifying and deconstructing the repetitive, intrusive thoughts that fuel PTSD symptoms. The rest is more or less history. CPT was created in 1988. Dr. Resick started studying it in 1994. In 2006, the Veterans Administration gave CPT researchers a grant to develop training materials to disseminate the therapy throughout VA hospitals. In 2012, a study found that 88% of CPT patients had not only initially lost their symptoms or diagnosis, but had maintained that improvement over five and 10 year periods. In 2013, the APA published the DSM-5, which revised the definition of PTSD so that it is no longer classified as an anxiety disorder. Artifact 3, Grass, by Carl Sandburg. Pile the bodies high at Austerlitz and Waterloo. Shovel them under and let me work. I am the grass. I cover all. And pile them high at Gettysburg. And pile them high at Ypres and Verdun. Shovel them under and let me work. Two years, ten years, and passengers ask the conductor, What place is this? Where are we now? I am the grass. Let me work. Artifact 4. The Universe of Criminality I was going to tell you the story of the investigation and arrest of Larry Jean Bell, a kidnapper, rapist, and murderer who killed 17-year-old Sherry Smith and 10-year-old Deborah Helmick in Lexington County, South Carolina in May and June of 1985. There are plenty of dots that had to be connected for his arrest. The expertise of multiple law enforcement and forensic professionals at the local, state, and federal levels, and the cooperation of Sherry Smith's extraordinary and resilient family in taking Bell's harassing, taunting phone calls for four weeks to generate evidence for the police stand out as just a few. Sherry Smith's murder is famous because of the gut-wrenching last will and testament Bell forced her to write and send to her family just two hours before she was murdered. In the middle of her incredible suffering, she saw an opportunity to console and comfort her family. Something good will come of this, she reassured them. And indeed, now her father, Bob, accompanies police to deliver tragic news to the families of victims, and her mother, Hilda, speaks to support groups for families of victims. Good work has blossomed from her death as Bob and Hilda Smith create connections with other parents in the darkest moments of their lives. But something else came from that last will and testament too. 
Police sent Sherry's will to a forensic document examiner who noted that the paper came from a legal pad. He processed the paper using a machine called an electrostatic detection apparatus, or ESDA. On an ESDA, paper is laid on a bronze slab that's perforated with tiny holes. A pump is activated that sucks the paper flat onto the slab. Then a transparent film is laid on top of the paper. A wand is passed over the transparent film that charges the film, paper, and slab with static electricity. The charge of that static electricity differs over invisible indentations on the paper where someone had written something on a previous sheet on the pad. The document examiner then brushes carbon granules onto the film and those granules stick to the charged indentations, making the text from the previous sheet of paper on the pad legible. The ESDA was originally developed by DJ Foster and DJ Morantz at the London College of Printing. In 1980, Foster and Morantz published an article about their work in electrostatic imaging to the journal Forensic Science International. In the United Kingdom, the ESDA became most famous in the case of the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad, a police group in Birmingham that was originally formed to investigate crimes like the Birmingham pub bombings and terrorist activities. By the 1980s, however, the squad's performance was declining both in terms of number of arrests and in terms of the seriousness of the crimes for which the arrests were made. In the mid-1980s, Daily Mirror journalist Chris Mullen began questioning the viability of the arrests made by the Serious Crime Squad in both the Birmingham pub bombings and the case of the Bridgewater Four, who had been charged with and convicted of the 1978 murder of 13-year-old Carl Bridgewater in Stourbridge. Mullen ran and was elected to be MP for Sunderland South in 1987, promising as part of his campaign platform to get the convictions of the Birmingham Six and Bridgewater Four reviewed. That review included the examination of interview notes taken by the Serious Crime Squad in an electrostatic detection apparatus by forensic document examiner Tom Davis. The ESDA showed that words and sentences had been added to the original statements effectively proving that the squad had tampered with evidence. 60 wrongful convictions were overturned and the squad was disbanded. Two years earlier, in Lexington County, South Carolina, forensic document examiner Mickey Dawson found a list of groceries and important phone numbers on Sherry Smith's last will and testament. One of those phone numbers led Lexington police to Ellis Shepard, who had been on vacation at the time of Smith's abduction, but who had hired his employee, Larry Jean Bell, to house it while he was away. Bell matched the FBI's profile for Smith's abductor almost perfectly, and the phone number found on Sherry's will proved to be the first domino in a row of damning physical evidence that brought Bell to justice. Tom Davis, the British document examiner who freed the Birmingham Six, described the ESDA in an article written for the journal Forensic Linguistics. ESDA is an extraordinary machine. 
It brings to light evidence that was not only hitherto completely invisible, but whose very existence was unknown. It produces not just identification evidence, but text, evidence with content. It can reveal whole narratives, and these narratives can reveal the crime that has been committed. Paradoxically, since what we are dealing with here is fabricated confessions, what it reveals amounts to a confession of the fabrication, a text beneath the surface that tells the story of how the fabricated text was created. This sometimes has the uncanny effect of taking the investigator back in time to the occasion, perhaps in some interview room in the West Midlands in 1986, when the document was first written. At its best, the effect of ESDA is almost magical. What Tom Davis illustrates is the existence of a whole universe of criminality, invisible to us, hiding in the imprints of ballpoint pen on paper on paper. Every good law enforcement professional spends their time trying to access the universe of criminality. When the system works well, they also have to operate in narrow margins of provability. When Foster and Morantz created the ESDA, they ripped open the fabric of space-time and created not just a pane of glass through which law enforcement could see criminal acts as they occurred, but open windows through which criminals could be dragged, unwilling, into the universe their victims occupy and into courtrooms. Artifact 5, Public and Private. This next artifact is the last and by far the longest this week. For your reference, Felix Gonzalez Torres was an artist who was active in the late 80s and early 90s, a gay American man of Cuban descent who died due to the AIDS virus in 1996. If you've ever been in the contemporary wing of your local art museum and seen a pile of candy or paper, or perhaps a beaded curtain that you're welcome to walk through, you've probably seen his artworks. We're in the home stretch, friends. From Felix Gonzalez Torres' lecture, Public and Private, Spheres of Influence, written for the Power and Responsibility Symposium, organized by CalArts, the Getty Center, and MOCA Los Angeles, 30th of September to the 2nd of October, 1993, and published in Art and Design. Thanks to the Felix Gonzalez Torres Foundation for granting permission to read this lecture. Everything that happens in culture happens because it is needed. Even this series of panels and the subject of this particular panel once more, the cultural left and the left in general finds itself reacting to an agenda or trap devised by the ruling oligarchy. Agendas and symbolic issues used to deflect meaning at any kind of profound and constructive analysis of the many crises that we as a nation are now experiencing. One of the subjects of this panel, the public, is a term that is becoming very charged and very used in the political and cultural arena, as we must have noticed by now. But I must say that I'm not very interested in the public as such, but in its opposite, in what makes the construction of the public possible, and that is the private. In order to conceptualize what we as a culture define as public, we must also create a private 
let's say in a very simplistic and illustrative manner, a kind of outdoors versus an indoors, just to set two parameters. But is it really possible at this point in history to create such spheres? And if so, for what purpose and to serve whose agendas? Our most intimate fantasies, desires, projections, internal dialogues, and ever-shifting identities are bisected, influenced, and ruled by public discourse, legislations, and the law. But before we go on, we should question where this public construction comes from. We know that the word public has been around for centuries, but what is its real history in terms of how we use this term, the public, now? When did it come into being? Why was it needed and by whom? Was the public always there, just waiting to be discovered, waiting to be addressed? Or did it perhaps become a necessity in an industrial society in which a group of people with similar consuming habits and power suddenly become a public, a market segment ready to be acknowledged through advertisements? Was the formation of a generalized desire for consumer items related to this event? And did the creation of museums have something to do with this newly available resource, the public? Recently, right-wing politicians and their allies in the religious industry have taken it upon themselves to defend this public, this public set of values, these community standards, now termed traditional family values. Remember, this public turned God-fearing, hard-working, patriotic Americans. But why now? As I said before, everything happens in culture because it is needed. And after more than a decade of steadily increasing economic disparities, it is imperative for those responsible for this crisis to find highly charged symbolic gestures with which the so-called general public will readily identify itself and quickly take sides, hopefully theirs. These keepers of the status quo are in a very precarious situation and have clearly anticipated the need to deploy mirrors of debate that would effectively deflect any formulation of a meaningful discussion. It is no accident that culture is now the new battleground. After all, the economic and social changes that the Reagan regime sought to bring about are now an accomplished deal. Our national deficit in 1980 was $74 billion, but by 1990, we had a deficit of $221 billion. In 1981, there were 10 bank failures. In 1985, there were 120. And by 1988, we had more than 200. In 1980, the ratio of the U.S. government budget for housing to its budget for the military was 1 to 5. By 1989, it was $1 for housing and $31 for the military-industrial complex. Since 1980, the federal support for housing assistance has been slashed by more than 80%, and the supply of low-income rental units has dropped dramatically as a result of demolition and conversion. But at the same time, during those get-tough-on-crime years, we were busy expanding and building larger jails to house part of the American family. 
In New York State, during the last decade, the prison space doubled at a cost of $5 billion. Often, the state resorted to urban development corporation financing, a corporation originally intended to house poor people in new city apartments, not in new prisons. According to the New York Times, 13 September 1992, the nation's incarcerated population increased by nearly 130% during the last decade. We have the highest rate of imprisonment of any industrialized nation. In second place is South Africa, of course. Moreover, it should come as no surprise that, yes, class is a factor in who goes to jail. 60% of inmates had incomes of less than $10,000 at the time of their arrest. Racism and class are usually part of the equation in many of our repressive state apparatuses. Federal drug officials have described the typical cocaine user as a white male high school graduate living in a small city or suburb. However, the famous war on drugs has been waged mostly on poor, urban, mostly minority neighborhoods. Talking of neighborhoods, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, mobile homes were the fastest growing type of dwelling in the 1980s as the cost of traditional houses soared beyond the reach of many. Nearly 16 million Americans, about one in six, now live in mobile homes. During the last decade, we witnessed 1% of American households getting richer. By 1989, the top 1% were worth more than the bottom 90% of Americans. In the last 15 years, the number of children living in poverty increased by 21%. In 1992, 7% of all infants and nearly 17% of all African-American infants were born underweight, the highest rate since 1978. According to the Children's Defense Fund, the number of children living in poverty grew by more than 1 million during the 1980s. The state with the highest child poverty rate is Mississippi, home state for the Distinguished American Family Association. According to Jennifer Howes, who led the March on Dimes Birth Defect Foundation in 1992, the proportion of pregnant women receiving no prenatal care or late care was 25%, the highest it had been for nearly 20 years. After the unfortunate but almost predictable Los Angeles Rebellion of 1992, new levels of cynicism were established by the conservative demagogues when they blamed the social programs of the 1960s and 70s for the violence. We must remember, in order to combat the rights rereading of history, that those social programs of the 60s helped to cut the poverty rate almost in half, and poverty amongst the elderly by an even greater degree. That the war on poverties in the 60s, as opposed to the war on the poor that the Reagan and Bush regimes waged during the 1980s, brought to many needy Americans medical care, food stamps, prenatal and infant care, legal services, college tuition, and guaranteed student loans, which indeed enabled many of us to forge a better life. Such poverty programs, according to an editorial in the New York Times, 6 May 1992, brought the poverty rate down from 19% in 1964 to 11% in 1973. Since 1981, direct federal aid to cities has dropped by 60%, 
and in 1984, the Children's Defense Fund budget declared each week 211 American children die from poor maternal and child health and nutrition while we continue to subsidize tobacco growers by $3.3 million a week. I bet you haven't heard the American Family Association rally the famous taxpayer on public opinion in reaction to this situation. We now rank 20th among industrial nations in preventing infant mortality. And when it comes to immunizing infants against polio, we now rank behind 16 other nations, including Mexico. 5 March 1992. According to the Congressional Budget Office, an outsized 60% of the growth in after-tax income of all American families between 1977 and 1989 went to the wealthiest 660,000 families. At the same time, the American family right in the middle of the income distribution saw its income edge up only 4%. And the bottom 40% of families experienced actual declines in their income. According to the Census Bureau, for November 1992, the number of Americans living in poverty soared in 1991 by 2.1 million, and the poverty rate rose for the second consecutive year to 14.2%, the highest since 1964. A family of four is classified as poor if it had a cash income of less than $13,924 in 1991. The government sets the poverty line by using the Consumer Price Index to determine the cost of a minimally adequate diet and multiplying that by three, wrongly assuming that a household spends one-third of its budget on food and that two-thirds can cover everything else. Today, just two necessities, food and housing, take approximately 85% of a typical poor family budget. Falling workers' wages and lower corporate taxes during the fabulous 1980s swelled the ranks of millionaire corporate executives. The average corporate executive, who earned as much as 41 factory workers or 38 teachers in 1960, was earning as much as 93 factory workers or 72 teachers. According to the Census Bureau, after adjustment for inflation, the median household income has declined 5.1% since 1989, and household purchasing power is lower now than in 1979. Even if we wanted to return to a welfare state, it would be rather difficult. We have successfully become the savings and loan bailout state. According to government figures of 1992, we now spend $6 on this bailout for every $1 on welfare. In terms of cutbacks in social benefits, let's take New York City as a good example of the attack against the urban center launched in the past decade. According to a report issued by the late New York Congressman Ted Wise, the percentage of New York City budget supported by federal funds decreased from 17.9% in 1981 to 9.3% in 1990. The cumulative loss in federal aid between 1981 and 1990 adjusted for inflation was $19 billion. The city government spent $755 million in 1990 alone simply to replace lost federal aid. The city estimated that those funds could have been spent instead to hire 3,000 more nurses, 3,700 school teachers, 2,800 more firefighters, and 2,800 police officers. 
1980, there were 30 soup kitchens in New York City. By 1989, there were 600. Conservatives have always seen the urban areas as centers of intellectual challenge, magnets for immigrants, and centers of political ferment and agitation. One of the dangers of our technological explosion of information is that it does not guarantee an informed or literate public. We have an explosion of information bites and at the same time an implosion of meaning. The statistics of the economic decline of the so-called typical family, the general public, or the famous taxpayer means very little to most people. One of the effects of the division of labor is the representation of facts and or issues as completely unrelated, separated, isolated, independent of each other. Meaning is mostly created when we can relate our identity to a piece of information. And it is precisely this that the right has been so smart at understanding and using for its own benefit. We haven't seen the religious industry and its conservative politicians getting into the debate on the need for more affordable housing or the need to establish some sort of gun control. These vital issues take too long to explain, and the fundamentalist Christian businessmen have long ago recognized that, as with any other capitalist venture, in order to survive and grow in a free market environment, it has to deploy eye-catching advertisements and create fast product recognition. According to Pat Robertson, one of the leaders of the fundamentalist Christian industry, abortion rights is a dead political issue, but don't take his word for it. With the threat of communism, body snatchers, Martian and or Sandinist invasions, and the evil empire, a thing of the past, the need for a new product container or new packaging becomes urgent to this industry of hate, ignorance, and fear. The need to distort and step on the truth becomes more extreme. During the 1992 elections, in a hate mail campaign opposing the passing of the Equal Rights Amendment in the state of Iowa, Pat Robertson, in his very humanist Republican self, wrote, The Equal Rights Amendment will lead women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. I wonder if, after all, this might actually be beneficial for women. I don't know the statistics for accidents in the practice of witchcraft or lesbianism. But I do know that according to the American Medical Association, more women are injured each year in domestic violence than in muggings or car accidents combined. But misogyny is not enough to keep a sales campaign alive. Enter now the profitable specter of the homosexual agenda. You may already be asking, or perhaps you were doing so a while ago, what do all these statistics and or issues have to do with an analysis of the spheres of influence of public and private? Well, they have a lot to do with it. They have to do with the reclaiming of language, meaning, and the reframing of this discussion. As I mentioned at the very beginning, things have a history in our culture. And the separation between public and private does not escape this in the same way that the expected role of the artist within our strict division of labor is supposed to remain static and conform to our assigned production. But it is precisely when we cross the ideological boundaries that we begin to make connections, we begin to create coalitions and to see a more precise picture of our present, not just the projection of ideological shadows, which so many times we take to be reality. This is an attempt at trying to understand how public opinion can be manipulated into accepting that some people are more equal than others, 
and that some private spaces are more public than others. This was demonstrated by the landmark 1986 Supreme Court decision on Bowers versus Hardwick, in which the state ruled that the bed is a site where we are not only born, where we die, where we make love, but it is also a place where the state has a pressing interest, a public interest. The court ruled that, according to age-old community standards and religious dogma, the state could declare illegal certain sexual practices, even among consenting adults. In this case, it was sodomy between two men. The court and the state once again sanctioned the public-private oppression of a whole group of people based solely on one private act. This public oppression is not an abstraction. It is translated into pain in the flesh, into Proposition 9 in Oregon, and Proposition 2 in Colorado, and next in Idaho, Florida, and others. It is translated into fear and violence. According to press reports, crime against lesbians and gays increased by 30% in Denver in the week following the passage of Amendment 2. And according to a national gay and lesbian report, there has been a 161% increase since 1988 in the number of anti-lesbian and gay attacks in five major cities where data was collected. There is no private sphere in the modern state. We can only speak about private property. There is no private space, no private entity at least not for certain groups, when it is still legal and endorsed by the state to oppress and discriminate because of who we love in private and, yes, outdoors too. That's all the evidence this week. Now I want to hear from you. What are the strongest thoughts and memories that occurred to you as you listened? What information and what stories are you aching to share now? What patterns did you see between these pieces of evidence that perhaps only you could have seen? What can you create that brings these stories together or brings you into their worlds? This episode was very evidence heavy because it's the very first. In the future, I want to spend the second half of the show sharing the connections you've made. So please get in touch. Ladycryptoid at gmail.com and Ladycryptoid on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you very much to Vladimir Hirsch, whose song Ultima served as the intro music today. You'll find a list of sources for today's artifacts in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. And if you liked the show and have a moment to subscribe and give it a rating in the iTunes store, you know I'd so appreciate it. See you next time.